0: Onari Tomotoki Opilin on Tomotokini.
1: Welcome to ConLangary, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Up in the great state of Wisconsin, we have William Anis. Hello. And up in New Jersey, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. I like how consistently time... the great state of Wisconsin, now
2: that George is going to be going to school here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been saying that all along, haven't I? You, you've been
2: saying it plenty often, but I just... <laughs> me just noticing that, oh, it's the great state of Wisconsin again.
1: Hmm. I was going to say, um, by the time people are listening to this episode, I will be in Wisconsin. But right now, I'm recording from West Virginia.
2: So It'll that's George's that's... Cap- captivity among the cheeseheads. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Where they will purify those. Yes, and yes. Oh, he would have to go uh... further north
2: for his O's to be purified.
1: Ah. <laughs> um. So the um. The uh, podcast may, we don't, I don't know whether it will jump in quality or it will backslide in quality or stay the same, because I don't know exactly how I'm going to be recording it. See, like, right now I record it on a big desktop computer, but obviously I can't take that big computer on a plane. I'm going to put it in a box and ship it. So, depending on whether it can get there in time for me to record, or... Whether we can get a a big studio or not a big studio, but a a, a pro- professional studio to um, allow us to to uh, use their their equipment, Toys. or or um, or if I'm recording on my my little um, Ubuntu laptop that is desperately old, uh, it hmm. all depends on you know how things work out. <laughs> Um, I do have an interesting bit of linguistic observation I, I wanted to throw out that I, that happened to me today. So, um, my, uh, my brother and his wife and their little, little baby daughter came in. And for those who don't know, my brother married a, uh, woman from Taiwan. Mm. And there was at one point where, uh, you know, the baby, my niece, Xiao Rose, was looking up at the ceiling fan and, you know, and I didn't catch all of what Jane said. Jane is my sister-in-law. uh, And, and uh, she, but she w- noticed that Rose was looking at the ceiling fan and she said something about turning on the ceiling fan, but she said, I think it's, I heard the word gongzhuo. So it was like something about somebody make the, the ceiling fan Gong Gongzhua means work in the sense of to like do a job or to do work. And I'm, and I actually asked her, like, I've not, I, 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 I uh, was curious about her using that word. And I'm like, I said, I'd never heard anybody use Gong with an inanimate object, and then she came back at me saying it was, she was personifying the fan. Oh, for the baby or just for fun? <laughs> yeah, for, for the, the baby. baby. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Baby talk is actually always interesting. Or this sort of yeah. No, that's cool.
1: Yeah. So that's my story. Thought that was that was kind of interesting that she would be that personifying the fan made it use a different verb than made it allowed you to use a different verb than you would normally use with uh, a ceiling fan. So,
2: yeah, no, that's neat. I like that. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: So anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is a typology topic. Yay! We're talking about head marking languages versus dependent marking languages. Ooh. Now, <laughs> William,
2: <laughs> Mike is completely entranced already. We've not even started. Ooh. Okay, sorry,
1: George, go ahead. So, William, you your first note is standard typolo- typological disclaimer here. What is this the standard typological disclaimer again? Um, it's all statistical. That's true. Yes. Right.
2: You know, it's not like there's simply no such thing as a purely head marking language or a purely dependent marking. It's everyone, they're strong tendencies, but nothing is pure. Um, yes. So that's what, it, that's all I want. That's the standard typological disclaimer. It's statistical, not hard ironclad rules for the most part.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So let's get into uh, some things about this. Uh, there you say, you say that it can also raise theory warnings. Right. Um, in
2: some sense, a head versus a non-head or a dependent may mean slightly different things in different linguistic theories.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, especially, we're going to be talking about some things that are a little bit further out there grammatically uh, than you might normally think of when we talk about head marking versus dependent marking, and those push really hard. But it does seem like Um, There is cross-linguistic agreement for the most part on what a head versus a dependent is, Um, Mm -hmm. which has an awful lot to do purely with syntax and nothing of semantics. Um, It's just sort of discourse requirements cause things to naturally fall into head role versus dependent role. And and a little bit later, I will give what I found the best sort of definition of a head that, that seems useful and um, does not taint us with any particular theory.
1: Mm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. And another reason um, uh, why we can usually clearly distinguish what a head and a dependent are is because in general, a language is pretty strongly one or the other with, as I said, a few exceptions. Okay. So you can have mixed systems that are sort of like have these mixed, like Bantu languages, Um, are very strongly headmarking on the verb, but dependent marking in the noun system. And that's more what I mean when Mm -hmm. we say a mixed system, as opposed to everything except, for some reason, the possession is weird in one language, um, which is more likely what will happen. You'll get one or two weird little bits of dependency marking in a headmarking language or vice versa.
0: So, Mike, did you have something you wanted to say? Well, first, I was going to apologize for the thud. I didn't realize there was a uh, garbage can under the table. But um, the other thing I was going <laughs> um, to say was that I was interested to hear about that definition because I was – when I was trying to figure it out, I had to draw out an uh, X-bar theory tree. And I'm like, hmm. But how do we do that without the, that messy tree?
2: <laughs> um. So – Right, so you can get some sort of argumentation from linguists, and and we're, when I talk about head marking and dependent marking, I really mean within the context of our discussion today, right? Because some varieties of generative syntax have all sorts of things they call functional heads, which are these sort of imaginary things that float in a theory, hmm. um, for which there is no, vert, no <laughs> overt, no uh, overt obvious sign of their existence apart from it simplifies <laughs> certain theories. Um, but in this context, uh, a head is a word which governs. Or otherwise determines the possibility of occurrence of the other word. So that sounds goofy. Let's get into a particular example. In a possessive phrase, the possessor is dependent, and the thing possessed, also known as the possessum, is the head. Without mm-hmm. something to possess, there is no reason for you to have a possessive a possessor phrase, right? Right. So right. Without the possessed thing, the head you you have nothing to hang a possessor off of now of course within the discourse the possessor might exist as a discourse topic but when we were talking about purely a grammatical relationship mhm okay so that's what we're talking about and and we can go through um other sorts of phrases in a few moments um well, well why not let's go through them now so in a adjective in an in a noun phrase with an adjective the noun is the head the modifying adjective is dependent Right, you don't get a modifying adjective unless you have something for it to modify. That's the head in a pre- adpositional phrase. The adposition is the head. The object of the adposition is dependent. To the store, to is the head. The store is the dependent.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. In
2: moving up a layer in the verb phrase, the verb is the head. The arguments of the verb are dependents.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then,
2: so, way at the highest level a main clause is the head and relative or subordinate clauses are dependents.
0: So here's a question um with that kind of breakdown it works for English but for a language that uses case to show destination what would be the head in that kind of situation? Um once you've got case marking you are almost certainly working in an independent marking language. Mm.
2: And we can talk about that a little bit. I have a few more basic things I want to hit first but one of the that's one of the the strong patterns is in general, a dependent-marked language will favor case marking. Well, sure, no problem. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, no problem. Um, uh, one thing I just wanted, a few quick last things I wanted to get out about head marking versus dependent marking mm-hmm. sort of mixes is some languages, of course, have no marking at all. Mm-hmm. Isolating language with a very little morphology, something like Chinese, it rarely makes sense to talk of head marking or dependent marking. I mean, there is some things going on there, but much less. And then you have fun situations where a language will mark both. <laughs> Yay! This is especially common with core arguments of a verb phrase. So you might have subject marked on the verb in addition to special case marking. This we expect from Indo-European languages, for example.
1: Yeah, that makes, that makes sense that that happens, you know. Languages, all languages have some level of redundancy, so it's not really surprising that some languages have double marking on, on these things. Yeah, you know, it may not occur everywhere in the language. It may just be in certain places, but
2: right right. So Turkish, and um, we'll pull out the Turkish example, which is funny. It uses double marking in its possessive phrases in noun phrases. So the example I have here is evin kapısı, which means the door of the house, literally is of the house its door. Okay. <laughs> um so it's it's double marked um both the head and the dependent are get their own special marking. Ooh, that's great. Yeah. Um and just sort of looking at the planet, in case you care, head marking is most common in languages of the Americas, Australia and New Guinea. It's not particularly common in African languages, unless you are a Bantu language, in which case it's pretty popular. Uh-huh. Which I just think is interesting. That's just one language sort of sticking its thumb at everyone else and saying, na 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 huh.
1: <laughs> um well one language family but yeah one language family yeah yeah um right so
2: <clears throat> th- let's get to the interesting part which let's talk about some of these patterns in a dependent mark language you will generally have case marking for roles while a head marking language will go in for either polypersonal agreement or noun incorporation or both Ooh.
1: yeah and um I w- I'll just interject here that um my reading of like the walls chapters that you linked and, and such, from what I understood, case marking at least most of the cases that we're familiar with are dependent mark marking strategies. Like yes. the genitive case or the nominative case or the uh the the accusative case or the ergative and absolutive cases, those are marking dependents. Yes, so, I'm dependent on the verb is what they say, and and, and clarify the relationship of that dependency. Yeah, yeah, and the and the genitive is marking the dependent of a possessed. Or right. wait, yeah, that's right. It is marking the possessor, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is the, the dependent. So right. it, that makes sense that since case marking is generally a a um, a dependent marking strategy so dependent marking languages would tend to have case marking although you you do have things like a a uh, possessed case
2: things like that but right or the construct state in the semantic languages which is also um, entertaining yeah
1: so you can have head marking cases but they're mostly dependent marking anyway go on <laughs> um
2: uh, right and and it's worth mentioning that Especially in the Americas, there are a lot of languages that have polypersonal agreement in the verb. Right, and by polypersonal agreement, we mean the subject is marked on the verb by con—excuse me—by conjugation the way we expect. But it might also mark direct object, and if you're feeling really excitable, indirect object or other sorts of case roles might get glommed into the verb. Mm-hmm. And then you have nouns floating around with no marking, um, and this I find causes anxiety for a lot of Indo-European speaking conlangers, but.
1: <laughs> lots and lots of languages
2: lots and lots of languages do this right again of the americas of course navajo and Nawat work that way um where who's doing what to whom is marked on the verb and then you just have for the most part bare nouns um and maybe some word order help maybe not
0: and those bare nouns are the there are like prepositional adpositional phrases no nope, just
2: they're just nouns floating around they're the dependents they're they've already been clarified on the verb um I mean, the neat thing about the Bantu languages in this regard is it does mark subject and direct object on transitive verbs. But because you have the rich class system, and that also happens in the verb marking, um, the chances for ambiguity are a lot less. Mm -hmm. Right. If you've got teacher and student who, well, that's a bad example. I don't know. uh, I don't know. Herdsman and dog floating around in a sentence and then you have a verb relationship. Um, That, for whatever reason, might genuinely be confusing because of the rich class system, even though the nouns will never be marked, whether they're the subject or the object, because the um, class agreement is so tight, you will always know who's doing what to whom unless you have two things of the same class interacting in a transitive way. Mm -hmm. Like if you've got two men kicking each other, then you're going to have a problem knowing who's doing what to whom um, and you'll have to have some strategy to clarify. Whereas it can be genuinely confusing sometimes, especially in a language like classical Nahuatl, which not only has no, uh, dependent marking, um, but has a somewhat free word order. So you get all sorts of funkiness happening when you have two, um, entities of the same, like two through person entities and transitive can be a little bit confusing. So that's the only, that's the big danger, I think, for a lot of Indo-European conlangers, Mm. um, with going with polypersonal agreement is making sure you can clarify who's doing what to whom. Unless you go bonkers and have polypersonal agreement and Dependent marking on your nouns, yeah. Which is a little crazy, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, it's not unprecedented. It does happen in some natural languages, but it, it is a little um, extravagant. Mm-hmm. But for people, you know, conlangers love their morphemes. <laughs> yeah, we love our five morphemes, <laughs> so uh, you know, here is an yeah. opportunity to. to, to go I think
1: bonkers. if you're going to do both of those, you'd better be highly non-configurational. Like sure, well that becomes order. Yeah. There's 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 no reason for order order to matter at all when 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 that occurs. For mm-hmm. sy- syntactic role for purposes. Syntactic, yeah. Uh
2: and you can there was something else that was fun about that I was going to say, but it completely lost left my brain. hmm
0: Um Oh,
2: I was just gonna say, I hope that you have complex syllable shapes, otherwise your words will be huge.
0: Right. You, yes. A single
2: utterance will become very complicated if you've got cross linked marking all over the place.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> all right. In general a dependent marked language will have uninflected adpositions which will probably govern cases whereas a head marked language will often have inflected adpositions
1: That makes sense. Yeah. Again the the
0: adposition is the head so right. Is that like um, I think in I want to say Welsh or something they there is this conjugation on the on the preposition? Yes, is all that, of the like, all of the Celtic languages do this. Okay. So Irish,
2: um, Scots, Gaelic, which is kissing cousin, uh, Breton, all of these have have
1: that pattern. Yeah. mm
2: hmm. Um, and that can present itself in funny ways. You might have prepositions that act like normal prepositions with nouns, but then inflect for prepositions with pronouns, um, or you get something like um, Navajo, which you don't say "to the man," you say "the man to him."
0: Yes. Okay. Um, and that's, you can go it, think okay. about. Pardon? That's a little bit strange to think about conjugating your prepositions. I've not encountered a language that really does that per se. Uh
2: yeah, the Semitic languages do it well as
0: well. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. It, it pops up all over the place. You never know where it's going to appear. So does the the preposition then become almost like a verb in the sense that it's conjugated slash declined?
2: Um it only marks for um pronouns. It's not going to be tensed or aspected or anything like that.
0: Oh, okay. It's,
2: it's just marked person,
0: be, basically.
2: Yeah, affects right? it, it, it only marks person, possibly gender. Okay. It's a little less mind um,
0: bending yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 it, it's, not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not. It's not taking the full. When, when I say you know inflected, it's 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 definitely its own thing.
1: Mm-hmm. It's it's generally like an agreement paradigm of some sort. Yeah. More it's like not- the clenching than conjugation. Uh, yes, in some ways. I mean in terms of it's it's much
2: more restrained it's not going to be huge you don't have to worry about subjunctives or anything crazy like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although <laughs> subjunctive uh prepositions that sounds like it could uh have some interesting ideas behind it. Mhm.
0: <laughs> that
1: um that makes my brain itch. <laughs> William, I think you're imagining things. Your brain does not have pain receptors. I insist that it itches, and you're not in my brain, so you don't know. (laughs) Okay. So,
2: preposition, should make your brain itch, even if there aren't pain receptors there. Anyway, um, and then one interesting thing I just noticed, excuse me, in in another article I found, is that head marking is somewhat strongly correlated with verb initial word orders. So one of the funny things about the Celtic languages out of all the Indo-European languages, in addition to having inflected prepositions is VSO or tend to be VSO. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know quite what's going on there. I mean, when I say it's correlated, it is only correlated, right? Navajo is vigorously verb final.
0: And is Navajo head marking?
2: Is strongly head marking in the verb and modestly so in the noun.
0: So the head initial or head finalness of a language is not necessarily related to the marking? I don't think so. So it's it's sort of a loose
1: correlation, ten, yeah. tendency. Yeah, I but, mean, it's
2: strong enough that people say, yes, this is happening, but mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly not a rule. Again, but, as always, the typology, you know, if you're, somebody, somebody if you're, uh, somewhere is an exception.
1: Yeah. If you're making just one language, then you can safely ignore that. Um, mm-hmm. But it is interesting that it happens. I don't. I don't know if we want to get into theories why, because that's no. a little bit outside of what this show is about. Yeah. Um, just um, know
2: that as a conlanger, you are permitted to play a lot,
1: um, um, and and
2: and with and still ex- and can still expect to produce a language that a human being can learn. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I'm care. interested in this next point you have. You say neutral marking, where it's sort of like you just can put a morpheme in between two things and it's not clear whether it's really marking one or the other. The, you you have an example for Tagalog where there's right. a linking morpheme. And,
2: and actually I've seen this kind of morpheme pop up in other Austronesian languages so it seems to be a general feature. Right. Neutral marking. Basically you have a noun and an attributive phrase can occur mm-hmm. in either order and there's just a link between them. Mm -hmm. So their phrase example is the book on the table, right? So we have the book is the noun and the attribute is on the table. Um, Mm -hmm. And the morpheme is either na or ng, right? The velar nasal. So you can either have on table ng book or book ng on table. And the meaning is the same.
0: That reminds me of doesn't Not V have something like that with the adjective? Not V
2: has something quite like that, which I thought was wild and crazy until I started running across natural languages that did it.
1: Hmm. (laughs) Mm Hmm. So you can you can just have something that comes in between. That's that just that just strikes me as interesting. It seems like that would be something that. You couldn't really stick as a, a typological thing. I th- I f- have a feeling that a lot of languages that do that have it, like in certain, like they have one particular morpheme that works that way, and then right, and and a situation
2: th- right. This is confined to the noun phrase. It would be interesting, yes. mind-bending experiment to imagine a verbal system that worked this way. <laughs> Maybe, huh? Um, Maybe. And, and I will leave that as, a, as an exercise for the listeners. Um, uh, yeah, but... And, yeah, I would not expect any language to have this as a thoroughgoing thing. And the uh, the paper, the Nichols paper where I found this, really only gives this as an example of, quote-unquote, neutral marking. Okay. Where you simply state, there's a relationship between these, but we're not going to specify which one's which. Merely that there is a head-dependent relationship here. Hmm. Um, and, and that reminds me a little bit of... um. An example I gave in the adjective, getting rid of adjectives episode, where the Coptic language um, has a great many adjective-like things that are really nouns. Okay. And they're simply linked to their noun phrase, and they can come in any order you want. They just have the particle between them. Okay. And they they seem somewhat similar to that, maybe. If I squint a little and turn my head.
0: So, So, is it... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mike. No, go ahead. Um, I was going to say, we mentioned that um, you can have some... Like, the noun system may have one type of marking, and the verb system may have a different type. Is -hmm. it more common for them to be not the same, or for them to be the same, like, dependent marking all the way through? It's more common for them to generally be the same.
2: Again, with the proviso that no system, no natural language has so far been seen which is purely one or the other. Mm
1: -hmm. But
2: you might have an overwhelming predominance of one system or the other. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, from what I understand from the uh, the resources that we have here, it looks like it's sort of most languages are leaning very heavily in one direction, but they'll have one case where it's it's, it's weird.
0: Yeah. I had another question, but uh, go ahead. Well, what makes my brain a little bit itchy, just a very little bit, is um you can have dependents and heads. But, for example, say the, in the sentence like, uh, I see John's book. Mm-hmm. So, in that sentence, John's book is a dependent of C, but book, but John is a dependent of book. So, how does the, mar- the marking jive with all that, uh, you know, matriarchal kind of situation? Right. Well, so it's just a normal hierarchical system. Um,
2: y- you slap together your noun phrase. John's mm-hmm. book, however you need to. Um, in Turkish, you know, you have the double linking, <laughs> <laughs> um, of John, his book. Um, and then onto that, you smack case marking if you need to. In the case of Turkish, you do. Um, and, and then pull up your verb. I mean, this is one of the reasons we make this distinction between head versus dependent marking in the noun phrase versus the verb phrase. If you're going to get a difference, it's going to be there. Um, And also, we've really skipped over the whole question of head marking versus dependent marking at the clause level. I mean, between clauses, like the main clause is the head and the subordinate clause is the dependent. I did not have the time to work my brain around all of those subtleties there. And and frankly, they would have been hard to explain on radio.
1: Well, since you have a couple um, Walls chapters, why don't we, like, I just want to kind of look at the frequencies really quick, because, you know, this is a typology topic. It's about statistics. Sure. So, um, on the one chapter, chapter 25 here, um, whole language typology, they have the, the list of it, and they have consistently head marking, dependent marking, double marking, and then inconsistent. So, out of 236... A hundred and twenty one that which is more than half are inconsistent mm-hmm. so i I presume that that I don't know what their definition of consistent or inconsistent is, but I presume there's there's some threshold that they they decided on as to how much it marks for one or the other, but oh, then yeah. after that, consistently head marking and consistently dependent marking are forty seven and forty six so those are pretty much equal, um, in terms of, and then consistently double marking, there's 16 languages in their sample, and consistently zero marking is six languages out of their sample, so those are not that common, you know, which makes sense, it's sort of, the double marking, usually you're gonna mark one or the other, but, you know, you might end up with cases where there's, um, some Redundancy and then zero marking. There's plenty of language that will do that. I'm gonna take a look. Um, the at consistently exactly how they classify. Yeah, the consistently double marking seems to be especially popular in Australia and New Guinea. Yeah. Um, oddly, they they with mark, a few other um, random things that pop up. Oddly, they actually code Mandarin as dependent marking. I'd have to th- think about that to figure out how why they were doing that. Because I guess. Because of the way that ad positions work in Mandarin? I don't know. Yeah. I um, know so.
2: And and I should mention one thing that I've left out just because I, I don't do this very often in my own languages, but should have put here in general, is if you use auxiliary verbs, mm-hmm. those are, oh, I'm going to screw this up. The auxiliary verbs are the head and the main verb is the dependent. I believe that's true. Let me check. It, that, that, makes would sense. Be, that would be quite the thing to bungle. Yes, the auxiliary verb is the head, and the main verb or the lexical verb is the dependent.
0: Well, coming from X bar, I think that's right, because the, that goes in the T position, of the T phrase, but theory. Well, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I mean, looking at – um I know using one language as an example is not necessarily good, but looking at English auxiliary verbs, all the marking goes on the auxiliary in English. Yeah. And I think that's what happens in most languages.
0: Right. Um I think Basque does that I think With basque, the engines.
1: well, Basque has a few auxiliary verbs that what- it, it, B- basque isn't it like the auxiliaries are it's almost you have obligatory auxiliaries that carry almost all the verb inflections and then burp, <laughs> then the the main verbs themselves are kind of defective.
0: I think th- I think so. I think it's like a pack mule that just sort of lugs everything behind the guy in front who does who has the semantic bit. They sing, they <laughs> dance, they handle yes. the catering, they do everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and as I recall, Basque does subject, object, and indirect object encoding in in that system. Yeah. So that's very oh, heavily, wow. heavily, heavily head marking.
1: Yeah. So anyway, I think probably your safest bet. Is to pick one of head marking and the dependent mar- or dependent marking, and figuring out what all that means, and then at certain points figuring out where there are exceptions. But then, you you see your language; you can do whatever you want with it, as long as you can you can make a consistent and uh, understandable language out of it. Yeah, and as
2: as we you know keep running into weird mixes. I mean, there's a lot of room for sort of goofiness and inconsistency, but I think if you're not, if you're unaccustomed to strongly headmarking languages, I you know, recommend every conlanger, every Indo-European-speaking conlanger, try one in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. They're kind of fun. Um, if you get confused, it's easy enough to find a grammar of Nahuatl or, you know, Hebrew online. The Semitic languages, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the um, Semitic languages tend to be, they lean headmarking, although it's a, it's a big mix, especially something like classical Arabic has case and effectively polypersonal agreement. So,
0: and inflected prepositions and all of that joy. Yeah. It almost, so feels, like, it's, it almost feels like it's a, I'm sorry. Go on, George.
1: No, I, I, I was just going to say it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very comp. It's one of those things where what we're talking about is a big grab bag of different things in, in a sense. It's a very complex uh subject that we're theoretically that linguistic theories are have simplified into this one sort of typological category, but deciding on head marking versus dependent marking has so many this is all it, we could almost do this as a practicum because of the the, the sort of wide ranging uh, effects it's of true. it. But, uh, it's true, uh, but true. You were say, saying,
0: Mike? I was gonna say I would. It almost feels like it'd be a good idea rather than trying to say, okay, my language is entirely one way or entirely the other way. I think it might be a little less of a of a you know sticky subject if you handle how do I want to mark my nouns and then how do I want to do my verbs because I think it's a little bit easier to think about it as a two rather than choosing one and sticking to that. And then you have to figure out, well, what implications does this have for the rest of yeah. the language? I agree. I think that adds a, a nice little tweak of naturalism.
2: We certainly, I mean, it's not super duper common, but neither is it very rare yeah. to have that sort of mix in natural language. And yeah. I tend to be verb obsessed. I know some yeah. conlangers also are verb obsessed, but those who like nouns better um, could then, you know, split, split their efforts. Yes.
1: Um, another thing you could do is like, you know, you're gonna be making these decisions anyway as to how you mark different things, how you mark possession, how you, how you, uh, how you figure out who's doing what to whom. This is almost something that you could make your language and then uh, later on analyze it to, to see what, what the general tendency is. I know that, um, that Ayuriyo is very, very heavily dependent marking. So, just thinking back on it. Yeah. But I wasn't trying to make it head marking or dependent marking. I was just... I was just... I like cases. And <laughs> I, I like verbs that don't agree with anything. So, I just did it that way. <laughs> yeah,
2: so that's, that's really strongly dependent marking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So right because the anyway. european language um like i i said earlier right is dependent marking in the sense that it's case marking but then we have a little bit extra going on in the verbs which has it's it's, it's not fully independent marking because there is cross referencing of the subject
1: mhm hmm. which is that's, that works yeah. um i think i think sort of unless anybody has any other sort of final thoughts on this topic, I think we can, we're, I'm going to wrap it up and just say, we have this wonderful, uh, PDF paper, um, yeah. by, uh, Joanna Nichols and it's, and it will go through all this, the stuff. And, uh, if you were confused by our discussion, I think I really suggest researching this stuff on your own, reading this, the, the, uh, research sources we put on the page. This paper's good. The, the walls chapters are, are also very good for explaining, uh, what these terms mean because yeah. there's, there's so many little different points in the language that you have to figure out what, what is the, the head and what is the dependent that you need to figure out. I'm, yeah. I'm
2: working on the assumption that most of our listeners are far, far more familiar with dependent marking languages, just because that's the language we're speaking is in that family. Um, it's yeah. really hard in a podcast to produce interlinears. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it, I really do recommend, um, we give a few examples, but if you can, definitely look at those walls chapters, look at the paper, because they'll have good interlinears explaining how a really strong head marking language works, which will be easier to understand than anything that we might yammer about i think
1: yeah it's 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 obviously one of those the the those topics that we're sort of at a loss to really fully explain it just because we can't we can't just like give you a a proper definition anyway, so why I... don't we move no go on. Uh, well, if you have something else to say, then
0: no. I was just gonna say I might try it. Like I, I might try a head uh, head marking language just because it is so different from the languages that I've worked with in the past. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I think if the... anything else, a little
2: sketch will give you, you know, get it into your brain, and then
0: it's there to be to be drawn upon for future
2: mm-hmm. languages if you decide you want to go that way.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a I have a language that I'm going to get down into de- uh, constructing pretty soon that. I may make heavily head marking, but first I gotta get get through the the uh the descendants of Ayurio and then I will get on to Pahran, or how whatever the name is. I always i I end up changing the names for my languages over and over yeah. do, do either of you guys ever do that
0: no yeah. really? me, I you do I, Mike? well, I usually just leave it as nameless and then I give the child a name, so to speak, um, after I've fleshed it out a bit. Um, and so, but once I do come up with the name, I do, I change, I've, I've changed the one, my current one about three or four times, but I don't know if that's a lot or not very many.
2: Yeah. If I'm just doing a sketch, it may have no name at all or a funny code name, you know, like M72B. Mm Mm-hmm the, the that. numbers they don't mean anything it just amuses me to give them those codes um,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, once i've given it a name it, it stays the only thing i'm likely to do if i if the language i'm expecting to get large is i will check i will google the name a few times to make sure that i'm not you know i've not picked a rude word in tamil or something like that yeah yep.
1: or <laughs> a famous
2: or a famous indonesian pop star or something like that just so that there's some chance of finding the material on my language I, if I want that, but other than that, once the name's there, I don't change it.
0: I think of mine kind of like like when someone's gonna get a puppy, or gonna have a kid or whatever, you know. Until the the kid's born, you might change it a few times, but once once it's out there and it's it's born, your language, so to speak, I don't really change it. Yeah, this sounds like a
1: almost like a a like a mini topic we could do sometime. Yes. That, how how do you name your language but let's not get into that right now uh why don't we actually go to our feedback for today and we got a wonderful email from caleb and he says hi guys great work work with the podcast informative and funny i got a few questions i wish to bother you with okay I was wondering if perhaps you could tell me why in iTunes I am only able to view slash download only the most recent episodes. Um, the answer to that one is I don't know. I think iTunes caches the, uh, feed and mm. that leads to it having some, uh, having like an incomplete list. Uh, I just looked in iTunes right now and we have Um, it, it goes back to episode 13 right now, so it may be that it's only caching a year's worth of the episodes, so, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I, I, I don't, I don't know how to set anything for, for iTunes like that, I'm, I'm sure it has to do, Mike, can you mute yourself when you're not talking? Sure. We're getting a lot of feedback now. Thanks. Yeah, okay. Um, so it is really okay. Where was I? Okay,
2: iTunes.
1: but I don't, I don't have control over what iTunes does, and I don't know. Uh, I, I'll see if I can poke around and find it, some sort of setting. But I, when I've looked for settings for how much uh iTunes should cache for me, I I have before I haven't been able to get it. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, that's one thing I don't know exactly what to do about, so. Um, you can go to com and get all of the episodes. That's one thing I can tell you. So if you go actually to the site, you can go and listen to episode one if you really want to. I don't really recommend it though. <laughs> um, so anyway, well, after spending way too much time on that, uh, the next one is, is, also, is there any chance of getting of Mark Rosenfelder getting on the po- podcast? Uh we have tried we have invited him on twice and neither time was it just didn't work out. So uh eventually uh we hope to have the Zompus to be on the con Langary, but right now he it's it, it, Mark Rosenfelder is one of those guys who doesn't believe he's, he, he would be good on the radio, so he doesn't, he's very reluctant to come on in the, in the first place, and, you know, it's just like, the time, the time that we had him, got him to agree to come on, there was an emergency that, uh, he ended up not being able to, so... When it's relevant to, I will see if I can invite him on again, but, and see if I can actually get him on the show. But for right now, you know, I don't know when that will be. It, uh, there has to be a reason for him to be on, of course. I, it's like <laughs> if we end up featuring another one of his languages or we have some topic w- that we think we, he could uh, give special, a good, um, uh, thing to. Although, you know, I don't know. Uh, the fact that you want him on, you know, if you let him know that, uh, he has, uh, a Twitter account. I think he's at Zompist on Twitter and he, and, you know, you can, you can, uh, contact him through the ZBB, you know.
2: Yeah. George works the power of the internet to peer pressure Mark into appearing
1: on their show. <laughs> you know. Well, let, let him know that you'd like to hear him talk, you know? I don't know. And uh, anyway, his last question is, And finally, wait, is that the last question? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And finally, do you happen to know of a good resource for learning the majority of the IPA sounds, pronunciation that is? I have looked for quite a while and have not been able to find much. Perhaps you could direct me to something like videos or audio possibly. Thank you for your time. I know there are several sites where you ha- can look at an IPA chart and click on the individual symbols to get uh, sound samples to play. Yeah. So you could look at one of those. It, um, and we can we can include some uh, some links in the show notes. I'll have to find the the one that I really like, um, but. Yeah, that's basically the the main thing, and uh it's. It, I wonder. I saw. I think we once had a saw a video somewhere where um, somebody explained it and uh, explained a little bit about the the articulatory phonetics behind it. Oh, right? I have no recollection. Um, right. Yeah, because one thing about the IPA chart is the the both the constant chart. And the, the, uh, vowel chart, just the standardized charts that you see are, um, organized according to features of, um, articulatory phonetics. So you have, um, in the, and we won't, we've, we've went, we've gone over this in an episode before because somebody had asked a question about it, but, um, basically for the constant chart you have the horizontal axis is, uh, place of articulation and the vertical axis is manner of articulation, and basically, you, once you learn those terms, you can start to understand wh- how to pronounce each of those symbols. And then for the vowels, it's y- for the vowels it's arranged according to the vowel space in your mouth. So if you take the left side of the chart as the front of your mouth, and then the right side is the back of your mouth and just like try to say a vowel sound while putting your tongue where the the symbol appears on the chart you might be able to figure it out <laughs> yeah. but we'll 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 find some charts that have audio files for you so that you get you can have a little bit more guidance than that my favorite one
2: um from a university i think in Canada is it uses flash and it's, its table for clicks is really fun because if you trigger a sound and then trigger another one quickly, they'll play on top of each other so you can do click beatboxing <laughs> in your IPA tool, which is I just think is fun.
1: Um, can you put a link on that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I will. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, in terms of other sorts of practice,
2: frankly becoming familiar with more languages is another way to get used to different kinds of articulatory phonetics. Um, I'm not sure how pleasant yeah. an experience it would be really to just sit down and work your way through the entire chart of consonants, say. I mean, it, I think yeah. it would be useful to listen to, even if you can't um, learn to pronounce them all correctly. And the, the little flash thing that I'm linking to won't certainly let you do that.
1: Yeah, listen um, to them. Um I I think, um, I think that's true, learning different languages. Another thing is, um, if you're in school, I don't know if Caleb is in school or not, but, um, you know, a basic linguistics class will introduce you to IPA and, and, uh, if you've got a good teacher, they'll, they'll, they'll give you some explanation that will help you to figure it out. Um, yeah I don't know. It takes a a particular kind of mentality to want to actually go through the whole chart and try to pronounce
0: every single symbol
1: so i have yeah. so
0: I have a suggestion too um uh-huh if if you want once if you google like uh say you speak English right and you google English phonology or whatever language phonology and go to the wikipedia on it um I'm looking at the English phonology Wikipedia right now and it shows you. The IPA symbol and the word from that language that's an example. so you could using your native language to see what that symbol is. for example, the theta it shows the theta in between the angle uh, angle bracket I guess uh, slashes. And then it gives the example thin with a th in bold. so you could look at that and be, okay, so this sound in English th, th, is that symbol. and that's a good way I guess to sort of ease your way in because it takes what you know, and it connects it to that IPA symbol, and you can learn it that way. Yeah. yeah, that's actually, like, Especially- Mike, Mike beat me to my next point was, the
2: Wikipedia articles on the phonologies are pretty good. What's great about them for major languages like English is it even splits it down by dialect, right? Because you never know if it just said English. Well, who's English? Well, yeah. the Wikipedia article is good at saying, you know, standard American English or, you know, Scottish English or, or New Zealand English or whatever. Um mm-hmm. So, you can even pick more or less the right column,
1: yeah, so yeah that's yeah, that's a very important uh thing that it because you know we're all English speakers, we all speak sort of different dialects of English um what was I gonna say, oh, and if you speak multiple languages, look at uh those different languages, mm-hmm. and you can uh figure that, that will figure, help you figure out some sounds that don't occur in English. So, I think that's, that addresses those questions. Uh, thank you very much for that email. Those emails come to conlanguageemail.com. That's where, you know, all, most of our feedback comes from. Uh, we do read iTunes reviews. There's one that I'm not gonna read this time, but I will probably read next time. Uh, Oh, I didn't realize this. They have um South African English in the list so I can learn to talk like that guy from District 9. <laughs> Sorry, I uh, just,
0: just
1: noticed that. <laughs> I thought, wait, it's South African English, but isn't there also South African English and then like Afrikaner, infl- Afrikaans influence? Because I thought African- the guy in, in District 9 was an Afrikaner.
2: He probably is, so I'll have to learn some funny accent.
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right.
1: Sorry. No, that's fine. (laughs) Anyway, uh, well, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? Uh, Except to, if you don't have
2: experience with strongly headmarking languages, try one. Make a little sketch. You don't have to finish it. I know some people are are like conlang monogamous, so that's fine. You can ignore my advice. But everyone else who does this for fun. Make a sketch with one, and just play with it around, play around with it a little bit, not necessarily with the goal of creating a full language, but to get control of it after you've done some reading. And then the next time, you know, years from now, when you want to try to do it for real, you'll have a little background, and you will, your brain will not hurt so much or itch so much um, if you approach it.
0: So that's it. Okay, and Mike, um, I agree with William. You know, I uh, just because well. Uh, just try it out I'm going to try a head marking one I haven't worked with those before but um, I'm going with the idea of maybe I'll like it maybe I'll really enjoy having that that kind of marking up system and uh, worst case you decide this is not something I like and you go back to what you do like yeah And okay. then you know more but then you'll know more so that's good yes so it's a win-win situation try it yeah
1: and because the, these things are so complex, you can probably learn something by trying a sketch of a, a uh, head marking language that you can port into a language that's otherwise mostly dependent marking anyway. So, yep. That's my two cents on that. So, I'm going to say happy Con Thank you for listening to Con Langery. You can find our archives and show notes at ConLangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.
2: like, George has climbed into my brain.
0: <laughs> the door sl- silently crept, creaked open. That was not very silent, though. That no, was one I a mean. freaking door. I had a nice little conversation with one of my friends uh, last, week, last weekend after we recorded. He was like, So, Mike, this sounds like something up your alley. Pronouns. I know in English they can do... St- you know singular and plural and first second and third person but do other languages have other things they can do (laughs) it was awesome i went off
1: (laughs) something on my computer is destroying cookies or something because you have the the cookie monster virus virus. i was thinking that i keep having to re-log into things
0: and such are you guys getting a lot of uh echo or feedback or anything
1: Nope.
0: Okay. No more than usual. Okay, well, I usually use headphones, and right now I don't have my headphones, so um, it's just coming out my speakers, speaker, my laptop's speakers.
2: Uh-huh. I always feel pissy when I have to cut and paste a character. <laughs> Let's find out what iTunes says.
0: Yes.